and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Michael J. Madison, Professor of Law and John E. Murray, Faculty Scholar at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. We will discuss his article, Fair Play, Notes on the Algorithmic Soccer Referee, which will be published in the Vanderbilt Journal of Entertainment and Technology Law. So welcome back to the show, Mike. It's great to join you again. A great pleasure, as always. I really enjoyed this paper, even though I will confess I know very, very little about soccer and how its rules work and how it's refereed. So for listeners who are ignorant of the greatest of sports like me, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of how soccer works, what the rules are like, and maybe most helpfully for some people, how it's different from other kinds of sports that people might be more familiar with in the United States. Sure. So the basic mechanics are pretty intuitive to almost everyone today, even if you're not an active fan or player. Uh, the standard game is 11 players on a big open grassy field uh, kicking a ball that is roughly the size uh, of a human head. Uh, and the, the basic instinct is you may not advance the ball other than with uh, your your torso, your head, and your your feet and legs, no arms can be used to control the ball. And the name of the game is over the course of 90 minutes to put the ball in your opponent's net more often than they put the ball in yours. Um, the refereeing, the officiating is typically a single referee running on the field, assisted by assistant referees, one on each side. And in super high level professional and international matches, there may be assistant referees uh, by each goal to monitor, monitor the goal line. And uh, the, the premise for the paper is that uh, in the last three or four years, uh, the international games and high-level professional games have increasingly featured what's called a video assistant referee or a VAR as a kind of instant replay mechanism. And that's sort of the, the prompt for the paper. One thing that's important about soccer as a, as a game and as a sport and something that distinguishes it in, a, in certain respects from other team sports like football or basketball or baseball is that the rules of the game, which is the, the body of, of law, so to speak, that's administered by the referee, have a degree of flexibility and discretion built into them that players are aware of and that referee has the task of administering. So uh, even though a goal is only scored if the ball goes completely over the goal line into the goal, a lot of the fouls, conflicts on the field between players, red cards, yellow cards, a lot of the administration of the laws on the field are discretionary on the part of the referee in a way that is in contrast to the kind of binary yes-no system of rules that applies uh, conventionally in a lot of other sports. Well, so maybe you could give an example of that? Because, I mean, some of them that you relate are quite surprising and sort of interactions between gameplay and refereeing that, although I'm not, frankly, much of a sports fan myself, strike me as decisions or circumstances that would be very unusual to see in many other sports like baseball, basketball, football. 
Sure. So I'll give you a couple of, of uh, sort of easy to appreciate examples. One has to do with the system of cautions and ejections that is characteristic to soccer, the yellow card, red card system. So uh, a yellow card caution is appropriate for either an especially egregious foul. So one player running into another player violently or recklessly, uh, a yellow card might also be appropriate for uh, an accumulation of of fouls over a period of time so that no single foul justifies the caution, but uh, sort of repetitive violent play uh, might justify uh, the warning of a yellow card. Uh, and a, an especially egregious foul uh, might justify an instant red card, but it's more typical that uh, two yellow cards equals a red. So if you get a yellow card during the game and then the same player gets another yellow card for another infraction of a violent sort during the same game, then the two yellow cards equals a red. The example has to do with the fact that issuing the yellow card, that just shifting the register of the of the of the call by the referee from blowing the whistle and awarding a free kick, which is the ordinary thing, shifting that up to a yellow card, which is a much more dramatic kind of sanction, that's discretionary on the part of the referee. There is no specific standard in the rule book, which is by by history called the laws of the game that says this is what triggers the yellow card. So what what influences this is a balancing act or a factor driven decision that operates in the mind of the referee, uh, the referee's experience, judgment uh, and the player's experience and judgment all factor into the legitimacy and acceptability of this. So uh, what factors matter? How violent was the conduct? Was there a sense of the player committing the foul was acting intentionally or recklessly or inattentively? Uh, the character of the harm to the victim? Was the player injured dramatically? Was the player able to get up and, and continue play? Uh, is there a sense that the, did the play take place at a point in the game? So uh, early in the game, fouls might be treated differently than later in the game versions of the same foul, which is interesting because the referee is conscious not only of in-the-moment judgment and repercussions, but also sensitive to how early game judgments might influence in a spillover way, influence player behavior on an ongoing basis. So if the, if the referee is anxious at the beginning of the game that this is a game that might get physical and violent, then an early yellow card might settle the game down, might send a signal to players that rough play will not be tolerated and the referee will exercise a firm hand. That same foul late in the game might not have that same spillover significance and so might not warrant a yellow card late in the game. Uh, and, and the reverse equation might apply as well. So these are these are processes that are always operating uh, sometimes on the surface of the referee's thinking and sometimes subconsciously uh, in the mind of the referee as the referee is running around following the play. So that's one example. Second example is a little bit more sort of ordinary in the sense that uh, it's called the advantage call. So when a player fouls an opposing player, but the victimized player and the victimized team nonetheless maintains possession of the ball, so still has the opportunity to move the ball forward, still has the opportunity to attack and maybe score a goal, the referee might not blow the whistle on that foul because the victimized team has the advantage during the run of play. And so the referee will let the play sort of evolve and see if the advantage actually matures. Maybe the, the victimized team goes ahead and scores a goal, or maybe the victimized team has a genuine opportunity to score a goal. In either case, the 
the referee has decided that the balance of equities means it's better to let play unfold rather than interrupt and award a, a free kick at the spot of the foul. Once play has stopped later, maybe the ball has gone out of play, maybe the flow of play has turned in a different direction, the referee has the discretion to stop play later and go over and if the referee chooses, issue a warning, such as a yellow card to the player that committed the foul. So there's a way to catch up later, even having allowed the play to continue. So those are both pretty um, simple, uh, straightforward examples in soccer practice and soccer tradition where so the referee has a great deal of authority and legitimate authority to decide what to punish, when to punish, how to punish. Well, so a lot of other sports have rules of the game that are kind of complicated and subject to considerable interpretation, uh, much as the laws of the game in soccer are. I mean, famously, you know, baseball was the subject of that great student note, you know, the common law origins of the infield fly rule. I wonder if you could say a little bit of something about how the laws of the game in soccer are different in a kind of quote-unquote statutory sense from the rules of the game in in other sports and you know specifically how it is that the referee plays a different role than we're used to in terms of the interpretation of the rules in in other sports sure so at the outset i don't want to over dramatize the distinctions between soccer's laws of the game and the rules of baseball or the rules of golf or the rules of any other sport, right? The, the, there, there's an affinity, uh, affinity uh, a family relationship among each of these things uh, so that there are, there are histories that are different. There are contexts that are different. There are cultures that are different, but there are also some, some important similarities. One thing that I think is important to, to recognize though about baseball, to take that example, is that virtually all of the responsibility of the umpire in baseball is to make calls uh, that are essentially binary. The player was safe or the player was out. The ball was caught. The ball was not caught. This is a ball that the pitcher threw, or this is a strike that the pitcher threw. Um, so the idea of sort of discretionary application of general purpose principles of player fairness that does exist in baseball. So extra violent play uh, or sometimes you'll see confrontations between uh, players uh, or or managers and umpires that are sort of theatrical in the character of their dispute. And then the referee, uh, the umpire, excuse me, in baseball has the judgment, you know, do you eject the player? Do you discipline the, the manager? Um, so there is definitely elements of discretion, but the balance of binary decision-making versus discretionary decision-making in baseball is, in my observation anyway, is characteristically different uh, compared to the, the binary uh, application of rules in soccer. Is the ball in play, out of play because it's over the line or not? Is it a goal? Is it not kind of judgments in soccer versus discretionary application of the rules in soccer, which tends to be much more dominant in the referee's performance? I think one of the reasons for the difference is that by tradition anyway, soccer is a game that is based on the flow, right? Play is open. Uh, 
play is directed by the players. There are very little in the way of scripting. Uh, there's, it's not a game that is supposed to be dominated by stops and starts. Baseball is a series of very discrete moments. Each pitch, each ball being put into play, each throw is a specific moment in time rather than a continually flowing sense of play. And the reason that's important when it comes back to the referee is that part of the referee's job and role in soccer is to sort of manage and supervise that play, uh, whereas the, the role of the umpire in baseball is to really decide, you know, was this fair or foul? Was this a run scored or not? Is this player safe or out uh, in that moment to moment basis? So there's kind of an ongoing supervisory role for the soccer referee that is, again, not unique in sports, but it definitely distinguishes soccer from a lot of other sports. Well, so in relation to your paper, I mean, it's hard not to see the analogy to law and judging. I mean, you know, Justice Roberts has his famous analogy of the judge to the umpire. You know, all I'm going to do is call balls and strikes, explicitly drawing on this baseball metaphor. How do you think the soccer metaphor might be different or suggest a different way of thinking about judging? So this has been an interesting conversation, sort of soccer and judging, uh, for a number of years. So I, I don't pretend that I am the first person to see this connection or to try to explore the connection. Um, the, the reason that the, the connection between soccer and judging has gotten more interesting in recent years is because of the introduction of the VAR, Video Assistant Referee System, as a kind of instant replay sort of oversight uh, of the referee on the field, uh, where the instinct motivating the VAR system, like the instinct motivating instant replay or review systems in other sports, is the, the risk of error on the part of the referee is substantial and uh, is reversible, is correctable. Uh, so you have a technologically grounded setup that allows for uh, expert reviews of play on the field. Ideally, the expert reviews go on at over you know, a relatively compact period of time so that errors can be corrected uh, quickly. And so what, what happens, and this is really part of the point of the paper that I wrote, is uh, that discretionary basis of refereeing that has been integral to uh, soccer culture and soccer practice for a long time is now being displaced in part as the VAR system takes on or is given more role and, and responsibility. So it's no longer the referee on the field having the final say-so with the referee's whistle. Now the referee on the field has uh, an eye in the sky, so to speak, uh, looking over their shoulder uh, for many substantial judgments on the field. So the, it, it, it's a parallel to uh, the ways in which we are starting to see algorithmic systems and other technologically based systems take on more weight in traditional courtrooms and judging and other kinds of adjudication. So what's the role of human capabilities in the system of traditional legal justice relative to the role of technological systems? And that balance between humans and technologies has uh, an echo, a very strong echo in what you see in soccer and in some other sports. 
Well, in the paper, you talk about the concept of polycentricity in decision-making. I wonder if you could talk about how you think that is useful in thinking about soccer and also how you think it helps use that kind of decision-making process uh, or how it's useful to help, how it's, how it's helpful to use that kind of concept of the decision-making process in, in other contexts. So one of the goals of the paper is really to introduce and advance the concept of polycentricity and uh, system-based thinking into legal scholarship more broadly. So let me take a, a step back a little bit to talk about what polycentricity is and then how it might be useful in this context. So polycentricity itself is a social science concept. Uh, it comes out of uh, traditions in political science, political theory, uh, going back to the 1950s at the very least. Uh, so it, it, you see it originally in the work of uh, Michael Polanyi and it gets really sort of documented and systematized in the early 1960s in the work of Vincent Ostrom and later uh, his partner and spouse, Eleanor Ostrom. And uh, the Ostrom's work has been a, a big motivator and inspiration to me in a lot of the scholarship I've done over the last decade or so. So I've been learning a lot about polycentricity and its history and its functions in the social science literature and, and the utility of it for law. And the reason I want to advance it in this context, polycentricity gets at the idea that uh, decision-making can have uh, sort of a multiple, a, a multiple character. You have uh, multiple sources of responsibility and authority over a given social system or domain. So think of it not in the soccer refereeing contest, context, but think of it in terms of local government. So like traditional, old-fashioned, but still very important local government, where you may have uh, municipal governments, you may have county governments, you may have regional governments, you have state governments, you will have other uh, governmental organizations, either because they have tax authority or because they have substantive rulemaking authority. Uh, you, you think of... A, in Pennsylvania, where I live, uh, school districts have an enormous amount of political and fiscal uh, capability and responsibility in ways that overlap. And this is the point of polycentricity to understand how governments operate and how decisions are made in a given region. Uh, you have to understand how the different centers of responsibility, we'll say local local councils, county councils, school boards, et cetera, how they are exercising their responsibility in their respective spheres, uh, but also as they interact. So as the outcome of one level or domain of decision-making feeds into other maybe higher or lower domains of decision-making. So to really get a full portrait of policymaking and decision-making in the region, you have to take a polycentric systems view, meaning you have to understand the multiplicity of decision-making powers and areas of responsibility. That kind of system style perspective is not common in legal analysis. In legal analysis, we typically think of decision-making, we stereotype decision-making as a kind of linear pathway. So decisions move from lower levels to higher levels, or decisions go from higher levels to lower levels in a somewhat more linear fashion. We don't commonly think of 
decision-making as a system with multiple centers of decision-making power at the same time. So that's uh, that's the instinct that I wanted to bring into this paper and express through this paper. Within the, poly, the political science literature and the public administration literature, there are more formal dis- definitions of polycentricity. So the way I've described polycentricity is a somewhat more intuitive or casual or even metaphorical characterization of the concept. And there are scholars who work with the concept in a much more focused, rigorous way. And I want to make sure that I'm not trying to advance that technical definition of polycentricity. I bring it into the soccer refereeing illustration because even though we highlight the role of the referee on the soccer field and we analogize the referee on the soccer field to a judge in a courtroom, it, and then we think about the, the new influence of the video replay system, it's really not appropriate to assess the strength and weakness of the referee's changing role relative solely to the referee. You have to think about all of the other sources of power and responsibility and decision-making that take place on the soccer field or even in the soccer context before fully understanding the the virtues or the drawbacks of of changing the referee's role. And maybe you could talk a little bit about those and how we might analogize those to a legal context. I mean, it struck me reading the paper that kind of the traditions and norms of the game play a really important role in informing how referees can and should go about making specific decisions in a particular context. Right. So just focusing a bit on soccer. So there's two two things about soccer as a culture and a tradition and a practice that are worth, I think, special emphasis uh, when we're talking about other sources of responsibility and influence uh, on, on, on sort of adjudication uh, and, and decision-making on the field. One, as you say, is tradition and culture. Uh, so soccer as an organized game goes back to the early 1860s in England and then it was in Scotland, and then it was sort of extended around the world uh, after that in its organized form. It's a lot of local variation uh, in terms of norms and practices. So sort of the English game versus the German game versus the Brazilian game or the Uruguayan game or the South African game, for example, you've got a lot of local customs and practices that that turn out to affect styles of play, the, the precision or fluidity of individual player play, expectations regarding violence and physicality on the field vary somewhat historically from country to country. Um, this is changing. Um, so norms and customs are always at least somewhat in flux, and that's as true in soccer as it is in other things. So uh, globalization, global trade patterns, global economics have had big impacts on professional and international soccer over the last 25 years. So it's a little bit harder to detect uh, sort of localized customs and norms today than it was uh, in the mid-1990s or earlier. But as a soccer player, when you're learning the game, when you're getting acculturated into the game, when you're getting taught by coaches and by peers and and, uh, learning from people you watch on TV, you're adapting styles and expectations uh, in terms of what you do on the field that will eventually and necessarily spill over into how the referee uh, in a game context reacts to you. So that's one. Second, uh, you can take that general sense of norms and customs and you can find specific examples of it. And my favorite specific example historically is the idea that uh, 
when you have a violent play on the field and a player is injured and stays down. So they're, they're, they're injured badly enough that they have to you know, sit on the field immobile until play can be stopped and the, the, the trainers and others can come attend uh, to you. Uh, so you're sitting on the field and the other team may have the ball. So the other team would have a player advantage because, of course, the opponent is down a player because of the injury. Uh, the other team with the ball is typically expected to put the ball out of play voluntarily, to stop play so that the injured player can get treatment. All right, so that's not part of the laws. It's not something that's mandated by the referee. It is simply a, an almost universal norm. Uh, it is not observed 100% of the time, but it's observed regularly enough, and it's observed across levels of player, international, professional, amateur, even high school and youth sports, uh, that it's, it's reasonable to characterize it as a strong norm for players. And what's more, not only are the players expected to put out the ball in order to protect the opponent who has been injured, but when the throw-in takes place uh, to resume play once the player has been treated, the throw-in takes place, the, the team that receives the benefit of the throw-in, right? The, the, the team that has the throw-in to restart play is expected to voluntarily throw the ball back to the team that put it out in the first place. So as a throw-in, ordinarily, you'd throw it to a teammate, keep the ball, carry it on down the field. But in this particular circumstance where the ball was put out of play to protect a player, you are supposed to give the ball to the other team to acknowledge the satisfaction of the norm, presumably to pay the norm forward. There's a kind of reciprocity norm that's underneath this, that you do it now, they'll do it for you later. But none of this is in the laws. None of this is in the laws. It's not documented anywhere other than in the embodied practices of the players through time. And, and it gets to the point where if you don't, right, once in a while, the player with the throw-in won't give the ball back. They throw it to a teammate and they don't perform the norm. The fans will boo. That doesn't have any practical effect in the in the in the short term, but it expresses an acknowledgement that there is a kind of universal norm that transcends the competition in the moment. And there will even be moments where some referees will stop play, take the ball back, and order the player with the throw-in to give it over to the other team, pursuant to the norm, not pursuant to the rule. So there's this interaction between the laws that the referee is administering, the expectations that players have learned over time, and the, the activity of the moment that I find very, very compelling. So the paper is primarily focused on thinking about how this these circumstances you describe can work as a useful metaphor in broader contexts when we think about relationships between human and machine decision-making. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of why you think this is a helpful framing for thinking about this kind of emerging question that we're going to have to be addressing in a judging decision-making legal context. So it's a framing that I'm hopeful will be useful in the sense that these questions of human-machine interactions are as much empirical as they are conceptual and theoretical. And so, for example, the research project that I'm just starting right now, the sort of the next thing that I'm doing is a project about smart city technology, sort of algorithms, databases, and other devices associated with the rhetoric of smart cities. And you can look at that smart city question from the perspective of 
uh, you know, monitoring uh, and sensor networks that that monitor traffic, or monitor parking, or monitor transit, or monitor uh, law enforcement and police that monitor EMT activity that monitor electrical grids. Uh, so the problem is that if you take any one of those slices and you start to think about the the trade-offs and and benefits and drawbacks of introducing any kind of so-called smart technology into a pre-existing um, piece of infrastructure or piece of human activity. If you just focus on that slice, you're going to miss spillover effects, both positive spillover effects and critical negative spillover effects on other attributes of urban life. Right. So when you focus on transit, you also have to think about employment on education, public health, and then the distribution of populations across communities and the, and the health or, or lack thereof of different different populations within a, bar, a larger community. So, so a, a smart systems perspective is, in my view, much likely, much more likely to give you better information about the strengths and weaknesses of a particular technological intervention than simply asking, uh, you know, is this software good software? Is this algorithm bad? A bad algorithm relative to the specific function for which it is allegedly designed. I think the, the the polycentricity perspective really sets up asking this broader set of system level questions about introducing algorithms into decision making. Does it work uh, as productively when you reduce things to the more traditional narrow question of judging in a courtroom, for example, or dispute resolution, whether it's in a courtroom or not? Uh, I think the answer to that question, again, because it makes it a more specifically legal question, I think the answer to that question is maybe it does, right? So if you think about some of the mechanisms by which large social media platforms or large e-commerce platforms are now implementing, or in some cases have already implemented, large-scale dispute resolution mechanisms as a matter of private governance. Think about Amazon and uh, Amazon's Project Zero for managing IP claims on the Amazon platform, or the the Facebook uh, governance board that is in the process of being set up right now. Right, Facebook is in effect setting up a kind of Supreme Court system within Facebook to manage conflicts within Facebook, not as a formally legal thing, but as a kind of parallel private governance structure that draws very heavily on intuitions about legal theory and legal concepts. Uh, is what Facebook doing, is that a good thing or a bad thing? What are the strengths and weaknesses of Facebook's model? I think that you have to take a systems perspective on Facebook, on social media ecologies, on information flows in a broad sense and the, and the, the harms and benefits associated with all of that in order to assess the strengths and weaknesses of what Facebook is doing with its new governance board. I think myself that it's an error to look at the governance board alone, analogize it to a court in some sense by drawing on uh, baseline expectations about transparency and accountability, for example, uh, and then come to some normative judgment about the virtues of the Facebook governance board. I think it's important to take a step back and put that in a larger descriptive systems context. And I think that's what I'm trying to argue for with this paper about soccer. Well, so Mike, in closing, reading your paper and talking to you about it, I couldn't help but think of our own profession, which is currently experiencing a really unexpected and novel 
intersection with technology in ways that maybe it should have dealt with a long time ago, but that people certainly weren't uh, expecting or anticipating. I wonder if the framework that you present in this paper and the way of thinking about kind of human technology sort of interactions could inform or be helpful in thinking about how we do legal academia, legal pedagogy, and sort of running the institution that is a law school? Uh, well, I'll have to come back for another podcast episode, Brian, to talk about all of what you've just introduced. But the the short answer is, yeah, you're absolutely right that that over the last I'd say decade of my career as a law professor, I've become increasingly attracted to the idea that legal professionals, whether you're talking legal academics or new lawyers or people who use law degrees in additional ways, uh, need to get much more conversant and comfortable with insights and expertise that are uh, contributed by other fields. Uh, so the, the the idea that law is a sort of splendidly isolated domain and we can content ourselves either with doctrinal thinking or with doctrinal thinking that is animated by sort of light borrowings from other areas outside of law, I think that's not helpful in practical terms uh, if we're really trying to train students effectively for success or we're really trying to make distinctive contributions to the world. My paper on soccer, a lot of my other scholarship these days has a very explicitly descriptive bent rather than the more conventionally legal scholarship normative prescriptive bent. I spend a lot of time talking with colleagues in political science and economics and public administration and information science and public health. And I spend comparatively little time talking about this work with with other law professors. Uh, and that's just because I'm trying to draw in as many different sources of expertise and insight as I can to, to tell stories uh, of the world that are as useful uh, as I can make them. Awesome. Well, Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about this excellent paper. Uh, I enjoyed reading it. I enjoyed talking to you about it. And I hope listeners will check it out because we only were able to scratch the very surface of the really intriguing stuff that you presented here. Always a pleasure, Brian. Thanks so much.
be fair Forgive you, my dear With sorrow and care I've lost you, I fear I followed the rules But I lost just the same Now I've lived and I've loved all in vain The rules that I gave you were all thrown away I guess after all love's too tame What heaven has given will take back someday So follow the rules of the game